Good morning, church family. This is, this is a joyful place. And if I could say, it's a happy place as well. I know that we are after the joy of the Lord that never changes. And God has also given us the gift of happiness as well. Um, who is the happiest person you know? I sure appreciated Teresa's good answer. Another person that I thought of is Bill Boyles. Yeah. Bill regularly worships over here in the fellowship hall. And uh, love he and Sue so much. And as I was thinking about it, the, isn't it true that the happiest people you know are also the humblest people that you know? Happy and humble go together. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to begin looking with you at Jesus' Beatitudes. And I've renamed these the Reatitudes. Because I think from time to time, we all need an adjustment of attitude, don't you? And if there was ever a time that, by and large, we all needed some re-attitudes, it's got to be today. But I'm calling it that as well, because I want you to think of these eight characteristic marks of Christians that Jesus describes and prescribes in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to think of these eight statements as resurrection attitudes. What does it mean to live in the life of Jesus Christ who's risen, who's present, who is here now? As we offer ourselves to Jesus, as we follow him, what we're doing is we're laying down our lives for him. We're giving up sometimes what makes total sense to us in favor of what Jesus says. Because I think what you're going to notice as we read these eight statements of Christ as he begins the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 5, these central statements, these central teachings that Jesus offers, I think what you're going to notice is that to our human thinking, these are upside-down statements. <laughs> you mean, happy am I when I mourn? And by the way, the word happy, makarios is the Greek. It, it can be translated either way. It's not inaccurate to say one or the other, blessed or happy. And I know it sounds more spiritual to say blessed. But Jesus actually chose this word on purpose because he's using irony as a teaching tool. He wants us to raise our eyebrows and to have to stop and think. You know, if we just read, blessed are, well, that sounds really spiritual and really good. To his hearers, they were hearing something totally shocking and totally surprising. And it starts off with the first beatitude that we're going to look at. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Would you stand with me as you're able? And I am reading from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And surprisingly, Blessed are those who are persecuted 
because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, may we rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually poor or rendered in some versions as completely bankrupt. Empty, unable to fill our soul. Notice, Jesus says, happy are those who know that they're poor in spirit. Think about that. I think the reality is none of us are able to fill our own cup, but sometimes we don't know it. Know it as in live that way. Sometimes we don't recognize the true source of blessing in life, the true source of happiness or joy or fulfillment. And Jesus wants us to understand very clearly where to find these things. And he starts by saying what our human nature needs to be reminded of over and over, it doesn't come from yourself. Do you believe that? It's a challenging thought because if you're like me, and I know I am, I like to have control over things. I like to make sure things are going to work out just the way I want them to work out. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to um, offer this message in three parts. I want to give some words of definition. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I'm going to give you a very simple definition. I want to offer what I think is really at the heart of this whole struggle for us. It's the matter of control. I'll make some comments there. And then I want to end with a few encouragements that it can actually be a more beautiful life to recognize our bankruptcy and just to be honest about that and to live into this sense of spiritual poverty that Jesus describes for all of us. Do you know that you're spiritually poor? So I'm going to start with a definition, and I'm going to start with what spiritual poverty is not. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he's not necessarily in Matthew saying that We are financially or materially poor. Now, I know you can look at the Gospel of Luke, and Luke literally says, blessed are the poor. And Luke writes with a totally different angle and purpose in the Gospel of Luke. If that bothers you, boy, you know, one records Jesus saying this and one records Jesus saying that, um, good. I I want it to provoke you. I want you to become a student of the Bible. (laughs) I don't want you to accept easy answers. I want you to dig into that good stuff. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, Sermon Digest. Barb Morrison's leading it. She will welcome your hard questions. (laughs) How's that, Barb? You're welcome. (laughs) Here in Matthew, please notice, he is saying spiritually poor. So here it's not a reference. I want us to think that way in Matthew's terms. He isn't referring to financial or material poverty. It does not mean a lack of vitality or courage. And that's important because when we hear spirit, we might think of a spirited person, someone who has a lot of mojo, someone who's excited about things, someone who's zealous for life. Jesus is not saying, blessed are you if you're mopey. That's not the point. (laughs) 
He's not saying that somehow it's more spiritual to look like you were baptized in lemon juice. That isn't what he's saying. He's not talking about a lack of vitality or courage. And he's not saying that blessed are we who have a false humility somehow contrived to gain the sympathy of others. You know the type. They run around with their eyes down to the ground, kicking the dirt. Shucks, I'm no good. I don't have anything to offer the world. Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I'm just here. Puddle glum, Eeyore, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. This is not what Jesus is describing. Real humility is not denying that we have any strengths. Real humility instead is owning that we have weaknesses. And there's a huge difference. You have strengths. Get over it. <laughs> Paul said, take a sober estimate of yourself. And then he talks about, in Romans, he talks about all of the spiritual gifts that he wants to honor in that Roman church. It's not about denying the fact that we all are beautifully created, that we all have a special purpose in God's kingdom. It, that's not poverty of spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. To put it very simply, here is what Jesus is talking about. Being poor in spirit is simply to admit that we need help. I like this paraphrase in the message. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. I want us to hold on to that idea and that image of just being at the end of our rope. If you feel as though you really are at the end of your rope in life, do you know that Jesus says, I welcome you? Do you know that he, this is not a barrier for him. He's not calling you to fake it until you make it. <laughs> he's just saying, I'm here. And the truth is, we're all at the end of our rope. We don't always own it. We don't always live as if our only vitality and, and our only hope and our only strength is in Jesus Christ. And so as these crowds of people come around Jesus, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people want to be fans of Jesus. Few people want to be followers of Jesus. He says something that probably feels a little strange to the whole group. This isn't strategically what Jesus might say to continue to multiply that crowd. He's really thinning the crowd. Because not all who are interested in hearing what Jesus says, not all who are impressed with the miracles that he performed, and therefore, you know, after he fed the 5,000 and walked on the water, let's crowd in here for the Sermon on the Mount and see what is going on. He, he doesn't, not, not everyone who's impressed by those things wants to take this step of discipleship and die to self. Not everyone wants to deny themselves. Not everyone wants to live according to Jesus' principles and priorities because they're so upside down to our logic. It doesn't make sense that I'm going to lose my life on purpose in order to find my life. Yet this is exactly what Jesus has said his entire ministry and his whole life. Jesus once taught a parable to uh, the Pharisees, actually, and, and he described this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who went together into the temple. And I'm reading from Luke chapter 18. 
Here's why he said the parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Does it get any more clear than that? (laughs) I love it when the gospel writers tell us why Jesus said the parable. Don't read into it any other way. This is why he said it. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. I just want you to know, as you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount, what you're hearing is a summary of Jesus' life. You're hearing a summary of his teaching. Jesus told this parable to those people. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pause. Sounds awful. But isn't it true of our human nature? Can't we all think of someone that we feel like we're better than? End of pause. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Pause. For those who serve tirelessly in their ministries, for those who give unselfishly, for those who serve in countless unseen ways by others, isn't there this temptation to somehow compare my sacrifice and my difficulty and and my hardship to how easy these other people really have it? Don't we want everybody to notice that we fast twice a week, that we give a tenth of all we get? Isn't there something pharisaical in our spirit? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to the heavens, but he beat his breast and said, that's not something men did, that's something that women did, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hence, the sinner's prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is not the teaching that people like to hear. Blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the empty. Blessed are those who realize their desperation. Jesus lived this. He didn't just teach this. There's an account in the scripture about Jesus being invited by Simon, who was a Pharisee, for a dinner. And somehow, as a host, Simon overlooked several things that you would do for a guest of dignity. You would kiss them on the cheek. You would wash their feet. You would anoint them. And Simon overlooked all of these things as Jesus came into his home. But somehow, in the course of this gathering, a woman entered, and she wept at Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with oil. Simon wasn't very happy about this because this is his party. And, and he, he said even, I know there's other versions toward the end of Gospels that give a very similar account. And it says that Jesus knew their thoughts versus Jesus said it. Didn't identify Simon, did identify Simon. If that kind of thing bothers you in Scripture, Good. <laughs> I want you to be a student of the scripture. But relating it here as it is in in Luke chapter 7 is the verse that 
that I was, chapter that I was looking at and, and referencing this and, and Jesus demonstrating something to us. She constantly anointed him and, and paid special attention to Jesus. And Simon said out loud, Jesus, if you only knew what kind of person this was, you wouldn't allow her to touch your feet. And do you remember how Jesus responded to that? He said, Simon, if someone were forgiven 500 denarii and another person were forgiven 50 denarii, which one of those do you think would be more grateful? And Simon answers, well, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt. And Jesus said in the Greek, bingo. When we realize our spiritual bankruptcy, the thing about Simon that's so tragic is he probably knew at least 50 scriptures that were prophetic pointing to the signs that the Messiah would come. And yet, the Messiah has come. He's in his house, and he's ignored him. Why? Because he already thinks he's okay. Because he doesn't realize that he is a debtor of the largest extent. He doesn't realize the cross and what's coming, and that at the ground of the cross, it's level. We all stand on equal footing before the cross of Jesus. Jesus lived this stuff. You remember in John 3 when Jesus went to, uh, I'm sorry, Nicodemus went to Jesus. Nicodemus is identified not only as a Pharisee, but as a ruler of the Pharisees. He's on the ruling council and and, and he approaches Jesus at night. We suppose it's because he didn't want to be seen with him, and, and there's some speculation about all that stuff. And probably pretty dishonoring to Jesus that he wants to meet him in private. But he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And, and it's the wrong question. What do I have to do? I mean, he's already messed it up. He's like so many that were probably crowded in around Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Galilee in this teaching that we've started with in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. What do I have to do? And Jesus is trying to tell him, it's really not about you. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about how you can fill your own spirit. And so he says something really interesting to him. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he's really confused by that. I've been in a birthing room twice with my wife. Neither time did I hear the doctor say to the baby being born, try harder. <laughs> being born is an act of grace. It's a gift. Nicodemus, what do you have to do? You need to simply be a recipient of God's grace. Blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit and they know it. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope because when you do, there's less of you and there's more of Jesus and more of God's rule. The kingdom of heaven. Some of you don't like paraphrases, but I, 
I just want you to hear, sometimes they're helpful for us because we miss things because we hear them all the time. Kingdom of heaven. And Eugene Peterson says more of God's rule. Well, the point is, Jesus is the king. The kingdom of heaven. It means to humble ourselves. It means to allow Jesus to set the priorities. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Blessed are the empty of spirit. And really what I think is underlying all of this is this issue of control. Let me offer a few words here, uh, put some words to maybe some diagnostic. Do, do any of us struggle with this stuff? I think that we resist God's control in other words, we're not poor in spirit. I think we resist God's control in his kingdom when we're trying to control our image before other people. When we <laughs> burst our way into the temple and say, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. When we won't humble ourselves in front of our friends and in front of others to admit our desperate need. You know, the good news of the kingdom, Brendan Manning said this so well, the good news of the kingdom is that God loves you just the way you are, not the way you should be. But instead, as people, when we sin, the first thing we want to do is hide it, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that, that's, that's our temptation. It's, I don't want anybody else to know how empty I really am on the inside. I need to hide that from other people. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you, you could just admit it. I think a, a signal that we're resistant of the kingdom and Jesus' priorities is when we try to control other people. <laughs> and we do. And Simon blurts out, Jesus, aren't you going to take care of this problem? He's trying to control Jesus. And, and this happens everywhere as we read about Jesus because he's so radically unexpected to us religious folks who like to keep up a good image and want everybody else to think that we're in control and calling the shots. Just to go a little further, I think we resist the kingdom, see if you agree, when we try to control our own problems Let me explain what I mean by that. When we rely upon our own strength to overcome our destructive habits and our sin, when, when, when we rely upon ourselves to do that rather than confessing sin and giving it over to Jesus and humbling ourselves before our brothers and sisters and finding help, when we try to control our own problems. You know, many of you are familiar with the organization Alcoholics Anonymous started in the 1930s with someone who had this basic declaration, I am not God, as step one of 12. And Rick Warren, a pastor in Southern California in the 1990s, um, took a similar concept of Alcoholics Anonymous and developed a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And I know many of you are familiar with that or, or aware it's been a very successful uh, tool uh, and blessing and ministry in so many lives. What Celebrate Recovery does is it helps people to identify that Jesus Christ is the high, higher power and, and to be in line 
with scriptural authority as they walk through the steps. But did you know that that Celebrate Recovery is built around the Beatitudes? The eight healing choices, that's, that's what it's built around. And step one is we are truly poor in spirit. And if you have an addiction that you're trying to control in your own power, you're not going to make it. If you can't say with Jesus, I am poor in spirit, I have no power to control even myself, you don't go to step two. But blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They admit that. And I think that we resist the kingdom as well when we try to control our own pain. And, and really, a lot of our negative addictions and everything else, if you think about it, are really just a response to that hunger and that emptiness and that fear of being at the end of our rope. So we reach out to just to self-medicate in every other way we can think of. To worry about something implies that we don't quite trust that God is big enough or powerful enough or loving enough to take care of us. Sin, worry is clearly defined as sin in Scripture. Do not worry. Can you do that in your own strength? Probably not. Can you admit that God is bigger than your worries? Yeah. To stress about something somehow says that the things that we're involved with are important enough to justify our impatience our lack of grace to other people, our need to grab control. Some people think to say that they're stressed out is somehow a good thing, that their lives are so important, that they're always busy and they're stressed. This isn't the kind of life Jesus taught. It's not about what you and I can do or not do. And you know, the truth is, there's been a lot of pain to manage in the last 13 months for all of us and whatever other crises that are just part of everyday life that, that seem to happen so frequently and so often. There's so much sadness. There, there's so much mourning. There's so much loss of control that it's just painful and just difficult. And I think one thing that coronavirus lockdown and all the ripple effects continues to teach me is that I'm not in control. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. You know, some people, they really like to argue about the technicalities of masks or, or immunizations or anything else. And <laughs> it's a different world. We're, we're all just clumsy. We're all offending each other one way or another all the time. And it's just such a hard time, isn't it? I don't really like to argue any of those things because one thing that it's taught me is, Ken, don't judge somebody else who sees this differently. Because really, you're not an expert on the pandemic. <laughs> I'd rather, anyway, I better not go there. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. It's just that I don't have control. And I have to admit what I don't know. And it's been a lesson for me, and I think a lesson for the church, to learn how to not judge 
people who see it totally differently than we do because it's so easy to do. We don't even realize we're doing it. Well, anyway, speaking of, you know, mysteries and, and unknown things, I, I recently read that there was a couple of hundred crows, you know, the birds, crows, that were found dead along a certain stretch of a highway and really intrigued um, people. And, and so some biologists were called out to see what in the world is going on. They were fearful that it might be some kind of an avian flu. And so they went to research these dead crows as they looked at them. And well, sure enough, it wasn't any kind of disease. It turns out they were struck by vehicles. And so, okay, we, we get that. And, and, but then they found something really curious about these dead crows. They, they figured out forensically that these birds were not being killed by cars. They were always being killed by trucks. And this really puzzled them. More research and, and the wildlife experts figured out about these birds. You know, you know crows, they, they, they look out for each other. One, one will perch itself in a safe place while the other feeds on the dead roadkill so he can protect him and call some warning for him if a vehicle is coming. And what they figured out is that crows can say, caw, caw, but they can't say, truck, truck. There's just a little extra pain for your day for you to figure out how to manage. I know. It's okay to humble yourself in front of a group. That's what I'm talking about. I want to talk about being beautifully broken. Friends, we're blessed when we admit that we're powerless. And it, just sit with that for a second. Isn't that good news? Because there are times in our lives when we really realize, I'm powerless. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you realize that. I'm powerless specifically when I recognize, let's make it really personal and practical. I'm blessed when I realize that I'm powerless to change my past. I mean, instead of trying to hide it, give it to Jesus. I'm blessed when I realize that I'm powerless to control other people. Amen? Because we try. I mean, my family had a lot of dysfunctions in it. We put the fun in dysfunctional. And, and part of my growing up in an alcoholic home is that we did play this game of image control and, and trying to control other people's behaviors. And and you know, when I became a Christian, there's just so much for me, and there still is for me to unlearn, to learn how to trust others. And that that's what love is, is when I learn how to trust and always believe the best about others, even if I might get burned. And so Jesus' teachings are hard because this world teaches us to survive, not to surrender. 
But we're blessed when we admit that we're powerless. We're blessed to admit that we're powerless to control our own harmful habits and addictions. I got to a point a few days ago where I just felt like I needed a more intentional Sabbath rest. <laughs> You've been there? <laughs> and so Teresa and I just kind of unplugged from electronics and all this other stuff in the last 24 hours. And I picked up a book that I've read before and it was just what I needed. Uh, it's a book by Francis Chan. He's a pastor and it's called Crazy Love. I read some incredible things in that book that just restored a sense for me of the awe and the majesty of God. Our worlds get so small when we're trying to play God, when we're trying to control everything. <laughs> he writes that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. That's some estimate because of the Hubble telescope. We don't really know. He admits that. But that's 1.25 times 10 to the 11th power. <laughs> I'm so small. My problems are so small <laughs> compared to the God who made everything with words. I read in there that the average elm tree has approximately 6 million leaves on it. And, and I think of the vastness of God, but I think of the detail and the smallness of what God can do. Maybe if this is your Sabbath day, it's not mine, it's a work day. <laughs> but if it's your Sabbath day, maybe going outside, and, and I would encourage you just simply take a leaf and look at the symmetry in that leaf and realize that it's producing air that you can breathe and you won't live without it. And, and that God somehow miraculously, with trees like this out here, the green is on the top, defying gravity to get the nutrients up to the leaves. And I mean, the whole thing, if you just stop and think about it, God is majestic. Did you know that a caterpillar has 228 separate and distinct muscles in its head? That's what I did. I just laughed. In humility. I, I, I couldn't make anything like that. Why, why do I think I need to worry and stress over my issues? Why, why do I think that my control somehow is smarter than Jesus' pattern, his life, his willingness to lay down his life and surrender his control? a pastor and so I feel like as I read about the warnings of Jesus and this is a warning blessed are you if you're poor in spirit and you're not if you weren't it's particularly a warning to religious people like us who think we have control who think that somehow what we do measures us differently that's a problem and if, if we could compare righteousness to each other I mean I'm, I'm released financially 
to study the Bible all day and, and, and encourage people who are going through crisis. Doesn't the Bible say to do all that stuff to you guys too? And, and, and I mean, I get all this time to be able to do that. If I were to brag, I'd be strutting around saying, holy, holy, holy am I. And you all be wholly miserable. <laughs> but I want you to know that Jesus Christ died for Ken Redford's sins. And there are many. And in so many ways, I do not measure up. I'm not enough. I'm empty. I have nothing to give of significance that Jesus doesn't give me. I'm an empty vessel. I'm a broken vessel. And I know it. And the older I get, and the more I see, and the more I think about God's majesty, the more I think about my grandson developing and growing and the intricacy of what's happening ways that are invisible to me and that a human pops out of all that that's just unbelievable. Fingers and toes and the brain. When I get to heaven, I'm just going to fall on my face. I'm not going to claim what I've done or what I've deserved or anything else. I'm going to fall on my face as I think all of us will before the glory of Jesus Christ and say, worthy is the Lamb who died for me. Only Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, to you alone be all glory and all power and all honor and all majesty. Lord, here we are, such finite people. And we just lose sight so fast of both bigger pictures and smaller pictures. To remember that the God of the universe loves us, is alive, offers freely his power and life, a new life, a new attitude, and a resurrection if we would be obedient and just willing to lay ourselves down. So Lord, whatever that means for each person in my hearing, God, let it be. Let it be that way for me. Let it be that way in my family. Let it be that way in my marriage. Let it be that way in this church. Lord, you alone are worthy.
invite the worship team to return do the closing song but let's just remain in an attitude of prayer and I'm going to give invitation if there's anyone who knows their need just to humble themselves before God and receive grace the scriptures actually pretty clear on what we need to do we need to confess our sin and I was reading in a proverb this week specifically we need to renounce it I think that's healthy just say Lord I want no part of doing things my own way if you're in that boat if you want to talk after the service if you want to reach out to someone I'm certainly available or find Another person that you look forward to as a Christian, I know they'd love to talk to you. If this prayer matches the need of your heart and your life at this moment, pray it with me. Jesus Christ, I welcome you into my life and my problems and my stress and my worry. And I even welcome you in knowing their sin. Jesus, thank you for loving me as I am, not as I should be. Lord, I humble myself before you as a person who can't even control himself or herself. And yet you love me so much. You came into this world in flesh after creating everything to suffer and to die for me. To give me entrance into a new resurrected life in the kingdom, the rulership of Jesus. Lord, I accept your gift of grace. I admit my need for you in faith. I thank you for hearing me. I welcome the new life that you long to bring to me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.